Success Stories is presented by TheConstantInvestor.com. I'm Alan Kohler, and every week my writing and podcasts put the financial world in context with a focus on the issues that matter. As a member of The Constant Investor, you can also access our exclusive Facebook group where I'll answer your questions directly. Join us today. It's just a dollar for the first month. Now here's Catherine Robson with a success story. A career in technology can be for anyone. This is the clear message Managing Director of Avenard Australia, Sarah Adam Gedge, is passionate about sharing. Avenard is a joint venture between tech giant Microsoft and global consulting behemoth Accenture. Its award-winning diversity program has proven that a career in technology is not bound by background or gender. As MD, Sarah's vision is to create an environment where diversity thrives and to lead a change across the entire tech industry. She's a self-described introvert, but this CEO knows how to connect with and inspire her team. She understands that now, more than ever, the uniquely human ability to collaborate is the key for true innovation. I work for Avenard Australia, and Avenard's part of a global organisation, and uh, it's in over 20 countries, and we're in five cities here in Australia. Uh, And what we do is really work with clients to help them on their digital journeys and moving to cloud. And so I've got a a group of people that work here that um, really dedicate their time and priority to spending all day, every day with with clients, helping them on that journey. And it must be a difficult organisation to lead to the extent that it's a joint venture between Mm. two big companies. Mm. So it's Microsoft and Accenture, Mm. both of which have strong cultures, both of which have sort of strong brands and big workforces themselves. How has Avenard grown out of that intersection? It's a great point because it's unique in that it's a joint venture in this type of arena, so technology that survived. Because often joint ventures are set up for a purpose and a defined period of time. And I guess when the oil's out of the ground, you know, you wrap it up. Whereas uh, we've been going now for 16 years, and as you say, going from strength to strength. And there's a lot of power in having great parents. Uh, They are great brands. Uh, We're working to be a great brand as well. And our culture is very different. Uh, you might say it, it could be a combination of both. I think people in all three organisations say that it's not that, even though we may have some people from Microsoft and we may have some people from Accenture. Um, mostly we have people that are homegrown within within Avenard. But we work with those organisations all the time. And so really we've got the best of both worlds. I'm not a technology person, but I'll have to admit, I hadn't really heard of Avenard mm. before. Mm. And I was surprised when I found out it's actually quite a large organisation mm. globally and that it's growing very strongly in Australia. Mm. Is that right? Yes, that's right. So uh, it's uh, an organisation, I think, in US dollars over two billion globally, and it's of gro- revenue of revenue, yeah. yeah. And its growth's been phenomenal, even during the GFC period, which was before my time, before I joined. But certainly, I've heard the stories about how well the business sustained itself. Actually, when you think of the space that Microsoft is in, because the majority of the work that we do is around the platforms and the um, 
the great innovation they're bringing to market, it's a fantastic time to be working in that space. And so the growth trajectory has been great and it, the outlook looks tremendous. And you're an interesting woman in tech, if you like, because you didn't start your career as an engineer or a programmer, mm. that really you started with a more classic training with accounting. Did you ever imagine that your career would take this path? No, I really did fall into it in a way. So as you say, I started off um, getting into the world of chartered accounting, although I've never practised accounting. I'm proud to say that. And you started in New, you're in New Zealand yes. originally? Yeah, I'm a Kiwi. And uh, although I, did, I went to university in Queensland, I've moved about a bit, you know, over the course of my life and career. And um, so, you know, I got into accounting because basically in my first round of offers, I didn't get into university. So I decided, well, I better choose something that's fail safe. And there it was. And I So you'll know, always have a job if you know how to do accounting? Yeah, well, you know, I think there's something to be said for that. Um, but as I said, I never practised accounting. But nevertheless, the training I had during those early years of becoming a chartered accountant and in those days, and uh, you know, I think we still try to do the same at Avenard. We give very structured training, so people come away with terrific competency and real strengths. But then I spent uh, a decade actually with my first employer, which was Arthur Anderson. I was very purposeful once into that organisation about all I wanted to do was make partner, and so that was and sort why of my was that? goal. What was appealing for you about being a partner? Well, I think perhaps, uh, you know, a couple of decades ago when I started my career, it was still in that time of jobs for life. And I looked up and admired people who were partners in the firm. Uh, they were mostly men, fair to say. And as I reflect on that, I can't think of women. But I had some terrific mentors. They were great operators in the market and with clients. And, um, you know, that was certainly a goal. So I certainly wanted to do that. And so I did achieve that. And then I left almost immediately and took an opportunity that had come up. Similar field. By that time, I'd moved into some business consulting. And um, still, you know, very, very client focused, but, you know, was able to give me a real appreciation for the business world, different industries, different organisations, how they worked. And that, you know, I've never lost that either. And then five years later, I, um, you know, was in a situation where IBM then acquired the consulting arm of uh, PricewaterhouseCoopers, which is where I was at the time. And, um, you know, I kind of was probably one of the resistant, proud partners thinking, you know, I'm not sure what this is all about, but really never looked back because that took me into a world of technology that otherwise I would have never got into. And uh, whilst I'm not a technologist, you know, having the best part of all a decade at IBM has then given me a great insight into the world of technology and digital and uh, had many fabulous roles there. I didn't really have a single purpose when I was at IBM, but you get many different opportunities and just got to the point where I wanted to do something probably in the same area of technology, um, but do something very different and uh, joined Avenard. Both, well, IBM particularly, but Arthur Anderson, PwC mm. and mm. IBM, they're huge global organisations. Mm. What does it take to thrive and stand out in those mm. sort of organisations so that you keep getting opportunities? It's an interesting one and there's a little bit of luck along the way, but I think, you know, certainly mentoring and having people be your advocate. Um, you know, you learn pretty fast if you don't have the support, then you can be a bit of a lone, lone voice. And how do you cultivate that inside big organisations? 
Well, you've got to be careful. It's a fine line, isn't it, between, uh, you know, sort of looking as if that's all you're seeking out and having a very vested interest. Um, but there's a lot of people at the same time that are genuinely interested in bringing other people through. And um, if they see something good and, you know, maybe it's effort or attitude or just basic competency, then um, I think there's some, you know, genuine supporters out there for, for good operators. And having a collaborative style, um, which isn't always easy to achieve, you know, when you're talking to other people at the end of a phone or a Skype call or whatever, um, but just being able to sort of maintain relationships in what is often very remote environments, um, you know, I think uh, there's a there's a skill there. And, of course, I, I'm a big believer in collaboration. Uh, collaboration is the definitely the new black. There's no doubt about that. And that's not going away anytime soon. We've got a very diverse workforce, and that's in every, you know, shape imaginable. But people joining us, they don't necessarily, they certainly don't want to have a job for life. They want to have great skills. They highly value uh, social interaction, but also corporate responsibility part of what we do. So some of the things we've done is we've got a very uh, effective diversity and inclusion uh, group, and that might, on the one hand, refer to LGBTI or gender, their particular focus areas that we have, but our corporate uh, and social responsibility comes under there as well. So we're very active with charities and people really get behind that and appreciate that we as an organisation support that. And people want that side of the organisation to be thriving. And obviously it's working because you've won recognition mm. for your mm. work. So yeah. just recently you were awarded the Diversity in Tech yes. Award. Yes. Yep. It appears, at least from the outside, that it's a very conscious commitment to using diversity as a strategy to be successful with business outcomes. How are we going getting women engaged with technology? Well, that is also a life's work in my view. Um, but we must keep going at it, and, and women in the workforce more broadly. Uh, that's a big challenge here in Australia when you compare us to some other nations. Women in technology, you have to redouble those efforts. So, you, And why is that? Is that just because naturally women are not gravitating towards technology-related jobs? Well, it's probably one of the reasons I never did a computer science degree and, and that women still don't because it's not appealing. It doesn't, you know, so maybe if we called those degrees digital design which has probably got the same content, or something that actually relates to the real world. And I'm, I'm not criticising course names, of course, but, um, and, you know, as I say, I fell into my accounting degree, so I could have fallen into anything. But it is not as attractive as, um, you know, perhaps some other opportunities that are out there. A lot of people want to get more into the creative side and design and marketing Funnily enough, they may still end up in our business because our business is changing as well. We have uh, over 10% of the uh, team locally, and I say that because we offshore a lot of our work, but over 10% of our team locally are design designers and more creative types and don't necessarily have their hands anywhere near the, the code. So it's a challenge. We have to be very deliberate because even though we do look for people who have got different skill sets, marketing, uh, agency creative design, we still have a brand that's associated with technology. And so, you know, we have to work very hard when we're grad recruiting to tell the story about what our vision is, which is to be a digital organisation supporting every other digital organisation that's in the country. Uh, and uh, we have to set 
ourselves internal quotas about our recruitment statistics and our attrition and making sure we've got mentors in place and you know stamping out if there's a pay gap issue which we've done we've got rid of any issue around that um, you know we do have to be I, I, I use the word affirmative action that goes back a couple of decades but we have to take affirmative action uh, because it, it won't address itself the workforce and technology 22 78 22 percent women and women will keep working at this challenge but we need the champions of change like there are here in Australia and in the US, they call them allies, same thing. We need the 78% of the men in technology or digital organisations to really work hard at changing the 22%. I do think it's a life's work and I do reflect very much on the fact that two of my three children are, are girls but even with my boy, I think, gosh, they're going to be struggling you know, in the same out-of-balance environment, whether they're in tech or, or, or not another industry, um, they'll, they'll be struggling in the, you know, with the same challenge when, when they're in the workforce. And do you think there's progress? Do you think there's implementable change that we can embrace? I think there's some fantastic things being done. I look at my own organisations, I sit in forums and listen to some of the marvellous things that other organisations are doing. So there's a lot of progress, but it's really everybody's shoulder against the wheel on this. Uh, because whilst there's marvellous initiatives, it does feel like, you know, a step forward, two back. And all the metrics you look at, I know we look at our own ASX top 200 or top 100, whatever you want to look at, and um, there's some improvement uh, there, but uh, it's pretty glacial. You know, I was working out when I did a International Women's Day presentation, it was something like 14 years that we would still have to wait for a 50-50 match-up on, the, I think, the top 100 or 200 ASX companies. And what can we do to encourage more introverts to take leadership oh. positions? Yeah. So I would identify myself as an mm. introvert and, and have loved... Susan Cain's work, her book Quiet, I, I found a revelation. What are your thoughts on that? Introverts and extroverts exist and one to two thirds of people sitting in a room or in the population are going to be introverts. You know, I'm reading the book, but I had the benefit of listening to Susan Cain for, you know, an hour and a half, I think, talking about it and talking about how the world is and it's the reality set up for uh, more of an extroverted population. And that really did resonate with me too. So um, now how are we going to get more people into leadership roles? My takeaway is, even though I too am an introvert, and in fact, as an aside, my leadership team, we recently all did our Maya Briggs as part of, we're working on ourselves as being a high-performing team. And three of the 14, are, including me, are introverts. My CFO is, and my delivery leader is, we're all the three introverts, we wanted to go and sit in the corner. But nevertheless, what it did do was give a far greater appreciation of how people will respond in a forum uh, or in a meeting. You know, you often don't see body language, we're often over the phone or Skype or whatever it is. And what I'm thinking about in terms of inclusivity, regardless of whether I'm an introvert or extrovert, how I can pave the way for either introverts or extroverts in my organisation or it could be actually in my friend group or thinking about my children, uh, how I can make sure I'm more open-minded about the 
techniques, let's call it techniques, the conversation, the dialogues we have, so that introverts are equally participating, but it may not be in the same way as you'd see an extrovert. One of my takeaways um, from the Susan Cain session was that, you know, brainstorming as a group is a disaster. You know, don't do it. Because if there's 10 people in the room, you know, three people will be very vocal. The introverted people will have great ideas or they may not have prepared well enough. And so we won't get a good contribution in that forum. So a little advice to self for me was um, prepare the group, you know, that there is going to be discussion. Ask people to brainstorm themselves and bring it in an equal way to the forum and then bring each person into the conversation so you don't miss out on some of the goodness. The final thing I would say on that is, and I can't quote all the people, but there's a lot of really successful people, yourself obviously included, that are introverts that are actually doing fabulous jobs in business, probably a little bit of uh, practised extroversion, you know, in amongst all of that, I think. In addition to Susan Cain's work and her book, are there other books or resources that over time you've used that have helped enlighten you, helped shape the way you've approached your career that you would recommend to other people? If I have um, sort of time on my hands, you know, holiday time, I like to read crime novels. Now, I don't think that helps me in my career, but what I really have enjoyed, and I can think of little snippets from a whole series of books I've read over time about iconic women. And um, so Indira Gandhi, I remember desperately trying to finish that just before I had my second child. I was literally in the hospital, you know, reading the last parts of that. But it really stuck with me, you know, just her total focus and the change she brought about for women. I mean, she lost her life over it. I read about Maggie Thatcher and uh, with the um, book that I read on her, and, I, you know, I, I probably wasn't really, you know, in the same era as when she was at the rise of her power. I didn't really appreciate politics. I'm not sure I do now either. But, um, you know, one of the things that stuck with me is, and I don't have the quote, but she said something along the lines of, whilst, you know, your home is where your centre is and where your heart is, it shouldn't be the boundary of your ambition. And she did a huge amount uh, to, to, you know, change the opportunities for people, not just women. Um, Cheryl Strayed's book, Wild, uh, where, you know, she literally went on that journey of solitude to fix her life up. You know, it's an amazing one. Um, Wallace Simpson reading reading about her situation, just, just amazing. So I've really taken a lot from that in terms of I've just really enjoyed understanding other people's journeys, I suppose. I've, I also read other biographies or autobiographies, I, I like those. And there's always something you can take away, you know, from whatever it is, a challenge or somebody taking an opportunity. In a work sense as well, um, and, and it's more in my recent years of my career, I really enjoy a reading about um, futurists' views. And so I like nothing better than a, just this fabulous idea where somebody's writing about something that's going to happen in 2030 or, or even 2050. I mean, that's a little bit further out. But 2030 is about when my youngest child will be entering the workforce. And you read about, you know, some things like um, urban agriculture. This is fascinating to me. None of us will tolerate, you know, eating an apple that, you know, has been in a fridge for, you know, uh, 12 months. And, you know, there was there's this sort of school of thought that 
farms, mini farms, will be built underneath our shopping malls and our supermarkets. I do that as much because I find it fascinating, but it's very relevant and framing in terms of the, you know, working in, in technology and in, in, in a digital world. Because a lot of, you know, we're very fast paced. Microsoft's, you know, bringing out great innovation all the time. You can't keep pace with all of that. But what you need to work out is how you stay relevant and how it's framing for the future. So then finally looking forward into the future and you've got insight to it because you really focus on it, what are the things that you're really excited about? Well, I am very excited about the impact that um, technology in this digital world that we live in is going to have on health actually and and medicine and safety for that matter. And, you know, I think of... um, a, a boy in my son's school at the beginning of this year, a silly accident, a jumping off a pier and is now a quadriplegic. And whilst I don't know him personally, a lot of us at the school have followed the story. And as much because we wish we could help, um, but also, we, you know, I'm sitting there saying, but for the grace of God, it's not my son or my daughter. But, you know, with this interest I have in, you know, what's happening in technology and reading for the future, there's a lot that's happening even in that space. There's now nerve grafts that you could never do before. In Canada, they've developed uh, an exoskeleton, which is kind of exactly what it sounds like. It looks like a little bit of a cockroach outfit. But it's as much to get the quadriplegia away. You can't fix perhaps the broken spine. But it is also to deal with some of the flow-on effects from being immobile. And so I think, you know, technology, you mentioned before, you know, driverless cars and the, you know, what's happening with artificial intelligence Uh, All of these things are going to help enormously in safety and medicine. So you think of somebody dealing with explosives down a mine, you can take away that risk. Admittedly, that person's job needs to change as well. But I think that, um, you know, I'm very, very optimistic around the, the real benefits that can come from technology. I know they can help my organisation be more efficient internally, and that, that's goodness. I, I never want to say that that's not great, but there's some, you know, really impactful benefits that I don't think we've discovered yet, and I think that's going to be great for all of our futures. Well, it's wonderful to spend time with you. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks, Catherine. Success Stories was presented by TheConstantInvestor.com. Our theme music was written and performed by Broke Free. Broke Free.